Good morning. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Ezekiel chapter uh, 33, verses 7 through 11, which is on page 611 of your Pew Bible. And then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, which is on 695 of your Pew Bible. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sins, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sins, but you will have saved yourself. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I will be with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. God bless his word. I think I'm going to need him. Oh, I'm going to need him. Timing is everything. Good morning. How's everybody today? Good. All right. Um, sometimes I really wish God would tell me what he wants me to do before 8 o'clock on Saturday night when the store's all closed. Because... We had to make something instead. I couldn't find any place that was still open that had one. So, and Freddie helped me out this morning with the rest of what I needed. So, thank you, Freddie. And my helper just went downstairs. So hopefully he won't be too long. But this is what I made. Anybody know what that is? What it's supposed to be? Hmm? A scale, exactly, a scale. Yeah, put stuff in each side and it goes one way or the other, right? Or hopefully does balance. Well, um, when I was reading the Matthew scripture, this is what popped into my head, except it didn't sit there until 
last night at 8 o'clock. Um, <laughs> so, um, but it made me think about how um, when you put something in, it makes it, oops, let me use this, it makes it more spare being held by something. So see, it, it's a little heavier on that side because there's something in there. But if I put something in that side, now that side's further down, right? So the trick is to try to get them to balance. And then you know they're equal. And that's what made me think about the scripture when it talks about, um, you know, you say something to somebody or somebody says something to you and you don't like what they said. Maybe they called you a name or said something about something you did or did something to you that hurt. And that's like putting another thing in the cup. It makes it hang down. And then, so because it didn't feel good, you say something or do something back to them. And it's like a teeter-totter. It just keeps getting worse and worse, right? You keep adding, and oops, now that one's a little heavier. And now that one's a little heavier. Ah, oh, here's my assistant. You want to help me? So we're going to see, this is like when somebody says something mean to you and you want to do something back to them. So somebody said something mean, so put this one in there and let's see what happens. In this one, this one. Oh, did it make it even? Close, but not quite. This one's a little further down now. And that's kind of not good. You've heard the people say, don't get mad, get even. Anybody ever heard that? Don't get mad, get even. Well, this is not the very best scale. If it were a better scale, it would be more obvious when we're putting things in that aren't even. I'm going to put one in this one now. Let's get this one. This one's a good one. Look out for me. Hmm? Yeah. Oh, it's standing because it's just standing up. So you can put that one in there and see what happens to the scale. Does it go down or up on that side, do you think? Hmm? Nope, they're just things, mean things that people do. There we go. Oh, no, that one's down more now. Uh-oh. That's true. Sometimes they put two in for one. And not only do they say something mean, but they might do something to you that's mean. Right? And it's really hard to get these to balance. But instead of not getting even... I think we should say, don't get mad, get ahead. Now, how do you get ahead? Well, we can get ahead by putting a lot of stuff in the wrong bucket. But the Bible tells us that instead of, yeah, I know, they're not even. You want to try it? I'll try you hold it. Um, instead of, when somebody says or does something mean to you, don't, I mean, our, our natural instinct is to say, well, mm -hmm, to you, right? Because somebody said something like, oh, that whatever is not very good. Your, your work isn't very good or um, your dress isn't very pretty. And our tendency as humans is to want to say, well, yours isn't either. Um, but according to Jesus, we need to say, you know, that really hurt. And I didn't like what you said, but I think we need to talk about it. And if you go to that person and you talk to them about it, 
and they say, I'm really sorry I didn't mean it, or I'm sorry that you took it the way you did, that's not how I intended it, then you've gained a friend, right? So that gets you ahead. If you keep building up and building up, what's going to happen to that friend? Are you going to have that friend anymore? Probably not. So you won't not only be even, you'll be down a friend. So going to the friend, going to that friend and saying, hey, that really hurt, you might gain a friend, but you certainly won't lose one because that's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what Jesus wants the disciples to do. And since we're disciples, that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to love those that um, are mean to us. And that's not an easy thing to do. You need to stay down there. That's not an easy thing to do. But with his help, we can do it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you give us strength and you give us courage to go to those people that say things or do things that are harmful and help us to be loving and caring to them so that we can show them what you mean to us and what you mean to them, can mean to them. We thank you that you give us your strength and your patience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for this time. We ask that you will um, do your spirit's work within us, that we will be blessed because we're here, and that the people that we interact with this week will be blessed because of the time that we spend with each other and with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last sermon of this particular focus on salvation or rescue, and all the way up until last week, we'd been focusing on this rescue boat shipwreck analogy. And I thought last week it wasn't going to work because we were kind of trying to talk about how to live like um, rescue ship people, but among the people of shipwreck. And I wasn't sure how to make that analogy fit. But that's because I've been thinking in terms of the books that I've been reading especially the one that I read most recently, which took place in the 1700s, and they didn't have rescue helicopters. <laughs> so Paul helped me out last week. He said, you can still use this analogy. Um, so our job in this analogy, once we have been rescued by Jesus and we're on his ship and we're learning how to be the crew members of this rescue ship, um, is... We're now, we get to be the, the rescue sw swimmers and the people that get sent down into the shipwreck, but we need to stay connected. When somebody nowadays sends a, a helicopter to rescue somebody who's, in the, who's stranded in the water, the person that goes down to get them is attached to the helicopter. They don't just like throw somebody out there and then you're both in the water. And so last week we were, I didn't know this, but we were kind of talking about how to stay connected to the ship or the helicopter or really Jesus so that we can continue to be kingdom people, continue to be transformed, to be like Jesus while we're working with the people who are still shipwrecked. So 
it's actually a really great way of thinking of what Jesus talks about when he prays in John 17 that his people will be in the world but not of it. It's, this is how we're in it, but we're of him. We're of his world, his kingdom, not of this world. So what I expected when I read this week's passages at the beginning of the week and I was sending out what we were going to focus on and the sermon title and all this stuff, this is what I thought we were going to talk about today. I thought we were going to talk about, hey, don't forget, we, have a resp- we still have a responsibility to share our faith with the people of the shipwrecked world and cooperate with Jesus, our rescuer, in his rescue mission. And I thought this was just kind of going to be like a wrap-up. But, and why I thought that, for example, is what God tells Ezekiel in today's passage. He says, if I announce that some wicked people are sure to die and you fail to tell them to change their ways, then they will die in their sins and I will hold you responsible for their death. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will die in their sins, but you will have saved yourself. This, I have been tra- troubled by this passage before and um, it is a passage that sometimes gets used in a way that makes us feel super guilty because we maybe aren't evangelizing as much as we think we should or it's not as effective as we think it should be and we put a ton of guilt on ourselves. Um, Before we unpack this a little bit more, let's be clear, or can we make sure that we're clear, how do we get saved? The guy on the cross says we do, on what basis? His basis by faith. So back to the first sermon of this focus, um, as the Apostle Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the the first song that we sang with Practice and Praise this morning um, really kind of unpacked or spelled out why. What, what is it that we're believing? We're believing that Jesus' death on the cross cleansed us from our sins and rescued us for, so we could be reconciled to God, but also so we could be reconciled with each other and the rest of creation and ourselves and help reconcile other people to God. So that's the underlying thing for all of this. This is why it matters if we're saved and it's why it matters if we're introducing other people to Jesus, all of this stuff is important. And so I expected, because of this Ezekiel passage, which has sometimes made me feel guilty, that this would be one more week of discussing how important it is for us to introduce people to Jesus. And so they can be rescued too, and it is. Um, And I was trying to figure out how I was going to not make us all feel guilty. (laughs) But then... I noticed that even though it is super important for us to tell other people about Jesus, so like that's part of our faith, that's part of what shows that we have been rescued, that's not actually what this passage, or the Matthew passage, is about. In verse 7 of Ezekiel 33, God says, Now, son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. Who are the people of Israel? Uh, Israelites, yes. <laughs> What's that? Okay, 
They, well, sort of. The people of Israel are the people that God chose in the First Testament in the Hebrew Bible to be his people so that they could become like him, so that they could reflect him to the rest of the world. And they didn't do a great job of that, and that's, and neither do we. And that's basically the whole story of the Old Testament. But the point is, God is saying this message to Ezekiel about the people who already belong to God. So, these passages are not about rescuing the shipwrecked. They're about rescuing the people who have already been rescued. Okay. We are, well, yeah, we'll get there. Hang on. (laughs) Last week we talked about how we ourselves need to keep living kingdom lives or rescue ship lives, how we need to keep connected to the boat or the helicopters or whatever we're using for our analogy, how we need to and what we need to do to do that. But this week we're talking about what happens when our fellow crew members get disconnected. What happens if they either unhook themselves from their lifelines or they somehow the cord gets cut or something? What happens when fellow believers give up trying to rescue people by word and example? What what do we do? What do we do? Yes. What do we do when they jump ship? Call a warning. Throw them a life jacket. Okay, great. So, it's important to think about these passages today that we're looking about, looking at, through the rescue lens, which you guys are doing. This is great. Because if we don't think about salvation as rescue, and we some, sometimes what happens is we forget that we actually were rescued and we think that we got saved by our own righteousness. Usually that's not what we're consciously thinking, but that's the thing that's in the back of our minds. And so when we read Ezekiel 33 or Matthew 18 through the I'm saved and these other people aren't acting saved, even though they're supposed to be saved, we, have, we are in very great danger of becoming legalistic and judgmental and really, really anxious. And a lot of times our anxiety is not, we might think that it's for the well-being of the other person, but a lot of times it's more because that person's not acting in a way that I understand scripture to say they should, and I, I'm not in control of it and I don't like it. And then there's, if you add Ezekiel 33 into the mix, it combines with this anxiety that these people, are they going to hell? And if they do, and I don't say anything, it's, is it my fault? So, I, while I was preparing the sermon, I happened in my personal devotions to read a passage from the book of James. James is Jesus' brother, and he echoes Jesus pretty much in the whole book of James. And in I didn't write down the reference. 
good job, Pastor Jen. I think it's James 4. Um, James says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So we should always keep that passage. I think it's James 4. I know it's verses 11 and 12. So check all the chapters in James, verses 11 and 12. You'll find it. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) Keep that in mind because that will help us when we try to help other people who jump ship. (coughs) Because even though it's very important that we not judge our brothers and sisters and that we remember we're not the lawgivers here, and we also maybe don't have a full understanding of Scripture and all applications, if we're in the rescue business and we see one of our fellow rescuers get disconnected from the ship or the lifelines, in some way, that is a life and death situation. Are we talking about losing salvation here? I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to say I don't know because... Frankly, the Bible is not very clear on that. There are some passages that would indicate that once saved, always saved is true, but that phrase is not in the Bible. I don't know how this all works, so I don't personally believe that you can lose your salvation, but I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that for certain. However, even if You cannot lose your salvation. We know, because we've either seen this or we've done it, that it is possible for a person on the crew of the rescue ship to start living like they're shipwrecked again. Whether they are or not, it is possible for them to live like that. They have detached themselves from the cord that keeps them connected to the copper or their copter or copper, copter, or they're allowing the drowning person to pull them down, or, this is the worst scenario, they have disconnected themselves, and now they're pulling people down with them instead of rescuing. We have most likely seen all of this happen. When we see this happen, the first thing we need to do is make sure that our own lines are secure. Because if we're... If we're jumping down to rescue drowning people, there's chaos all around us. So don't end up doing the same thing that the other person that you're watching is doing. We have got to stay connected to Jesus, and one really great way to do that is to maybe memorize James whatever, verses 11 and 12. Four. It is four. Well... If you want to, if you want to memorize all of James, it's, it's a great book. Yes. Okay. Officially, James four eleven and twelve. Thank you, people that looked it up. <laughs> um, so, if we are really rescued by Jesus, we have got to stay connected to Him and let Him transform us from the inside out, and not be the kind of rescuer who panics. 
when we see other people in a bad situation because that's not going to help their situation. Jesus is the life giver. He is the one who beat death, and we are to follow in his steps. So that's going to help us rescue other people. But also, if we or someone else is not doing that, whether or not it's possible to lose salvation, if we have disconnected from our Savior, we are cooperating with the ways of the world that lead to death. Something in us has died, and so it is, in some way or other, a life or death situation. And God doesn't actually want anyone to die. He says that in Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11. Son of man, give the people of Israel this message. You are saying, our sins are heavy upon us. We are wasting away. How can we survive? As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn! Turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? God doesn't want anybody to die. He doesn't want his people to die. He doesn't want the people who aren't yet his people to die. He doesn't want anybody to die. That's why we're doing this. And when people are given the opportunity to live, to choose life, to choose Jesus, then they, or we, or anybody, are responsible for turning to God, repenting, like Jeremiah last week. We talked a little bit about that. But we cannot force anybody to repent, and God will not force anybody to repent, because he wants people to choose him and his way. God doesn't want people who were conscripted. He doesn't want people dragged in. He wants people to choose. Some of us chose a little bit begrudgingly, and we're still kind of dragging our feet. That was true of C.S. Lewis, by the way, who you may have heard of. Um, but it's still a choice that we make. We put our trust in Jesus by faith. This is what God wants, so it cannot be forced, but God does want us to repent so we can live. So that's the Old Testament version of this. What does Jesus say about this, or how does he say it? Here's the short version of this little snippet of Matthew 18 that Lily read. When you see a, a rescued person making choices that lead to death, so somebody who already belongs to Jesus, but they are making choices that are not like Jesus, that harm themselves or others, that are opposed to the loving law of God, care for them. That's basically the summary of what Jesus says here. Care for them. This passage in Matthew 18 is essentially Ezekiel 33, but it has many more obvious layers of grace for everybody. All right. Someone please give me an outline of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18. Pretty random one. Okay, communication. Wanna I mean, it'd be helpful. <laughs> yeah. 
So. So to sum up what Sandy summed up, um, if you if there's an issue with you and another person, talk it out. Like Tim said, have a conversation about it. Try to work it out together. If that doesn't work, bring in another person. If that doesn't work, bring in a couple more people as witnesses, and then bring it to the church. If you think about this passage, you've probably heard it or read it before. Um, if you think about it in terms of what we just read about God that God said to Ezekiel, does it change a little bit of how you think about it? Yes, no, maybe so. No. Okay. This passage, the Ezekiel passage often gets misunderstood because it often gets applied to trying to evangelize, and that's not what it's about. This passage also gets misunderstood and sometimes misused, um, and I feel like, I don't know that this has happened here, but out there right now, it is one of the number one ways that bigger churches use to cover up abusive pastors. They will take this step-by-step process that Jesus described, and they will say, well, you can't say this about your pastor because, and, and they will make it so that people who have genuinely experienced really bad abuse from pastors who shouldn't be in that role, um, get, there is no fall, follow, there is no fallout for that pastor. Um, so that is one way that this passage gets misused. And so it's important to, to be really alert for that. But the other thing that happens with this passage more frequently in my experience is that it gets read by itself, like we did today, and then taken out of context. And then what happens is it leads to very rigid application and often really anxious legalism and sometimes pride which is the opposite of, we've been talking about how humility is necessary for salvation, for rescue. And it turns into the, basically the opposite of what Jesus and James say about not judging our brothers. And I don't think most people do that on purpose, but it's really easy to do that if you just take this passage all by itself. The first thing to be aware of about this passage is it's not a command. It's for sure not a command in the same way the Ten Commandments are a command, but it's also not a, it's not even like one of the laws in the Old Testament. It's not on the same level of that, even though Jesus says it. And I'll tell you how we can tell. Because of where and how it is embedded in the full chapter, Matthew 18. A lot of times when people are talking about this passage, they will nickname it Matthew 18. But Matthew 18 is actually a super long chapter with a ton of stuff in it, and this passage only takes up a tiny little space in it. And so this passage has to make sense 
in the context of the whole chapter, and it actually does. So I'll encourage you to um, read the whole thing. Just like sometime when you have a block of time, sit down and read the whole chapter and watch how it flows. Where this little passage sits is in a block of teaching. Jesus is, in this case, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's not teaching the crowds. He's not teaching the Pharisees. He's not telling off the Pharisees. He's, he's teaching his disciples about grace. And he is saying, give grace to each other as if you're little kids. And what kicks this off is the disciples are fighting about who's the greatest. So here's how the, chap the chapter gets outlined. Also, this, this little passage gets sandwiched between two parables. So it's really important to pay attention to the parables on either side of it and what the point of those is to understand this. So the whole chapter outline basically goes, Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus is like this kid. And one way for us, this is a little aside, but it's, this is important. Think about that. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the greatest in the church? The person who needs the most care. Not the person who has it the most together. Not the person who has the best Bible teaching. Not the oldest person. Maybe the youngest person. Who's the person that's the greatest? The one that needs the most help. So, that's the first piece of this chapter. And then Jesus expands on that. He gets really, uh, he gets really intense about how children, especially, are treated in his kingdom. He says, anyone who encourages these most important members of the kingdom, the childlike ones, to sin, or who sins against them, deserves to have a huge weight tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea to drown. This is, we're talking about shipwrecks and rescue and pulling people out of the water, right? Jesus is saying, if you harm a childlike one in any way, and I feel like, why, how can there possibly be so many abusive pastors that I've heard of? Because this is so clear. This is extreme for Jesus. Jesus likes to exaggerate a lot, but he's like, this is extreme even for him. This just shows how serious it is for us to do anything against a childlike one, a, a literal child or somebody who is innocent, somebody who has less um, resources and less power than somebody else. So that's the first, that's what sets up this chapter. Be childlike. That's how you be the greatest in the kingdom. Then he tells the parable of the lost sheep, which is about how God will go to any length to rescue one person. And because of the context, I actually, I used to think that parable was about, like I thought the Ezekiel passage was about unbelievers, rescuing unbelievers, but I really think this is also about people who are wandering from the fold of God, from the people of God. God will go after that person. That person is important. And then Jesus gives us verses 5 to 20, and, or, it's not 5 to 20, 15 to 20, um, and talks about, you know, if your brother sins against you, 
And then Peter asks about forgiveness, and then Jesus tells this super long parable about a servant who's forgiven but doesn't forgive somebody that sins against him. And even though Jesus has just pointed out and outlined a really wise process to help his followers deal with conflict and sin in their community, the characters in his parable don't follow it. So that means, all of that together, means that Verses 15 to 20 are important. They are, I feel like before psychology existed, Jesus was a really good psychologist. He knew how people worked. He knew what good communication was. And so it is very good psychology. It is wise. It is a helpful way to, to do things. But, and it's in the Bible, and Jesus said it, so it's important. But it's not a command like the Ten Commandments. And if we turn it into a checklist, it loses something. So we need to keep all of this, the whole chapter, in mind when we're trying to understand and apply verses 15 to 20. This is important, so we're going to keep going, but we are getting near the end. (laughs) Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, almost every Bible translation that you have, if you look at that verse, it will, tell, it will say, if another believer sins against you, but then it will have a little footnote, and it will say that in some versions of the oldest copies of this text that we have, it doesn't say against you, it just says, if another believer sins. Either way, that's significant, because this is about actual sin, actual not Christ-like behavior, not a personal peeve. It's not about a personal peeve. It's not about being judgmental. It's not about, really, even if it's between you and another person, it's not about you. It needs to be more objective than that. And the way Jesus outlines this is actually very, very relational but it can't be very relational if we make it into a checklist. Going to the person when you see that a person is living in a way that is not Christ-like is hard. It's easy to see somebody doing something wrong and talk about them behind their back. It's also easy to make a snarky comment at them in passing. Um, But... If you are going to go to the person, you have to, first of all, you have to take a pause. You have to be ready to have this hard conversation with another person. It gives us the opportunity to really discern, is this really a sin issue, or is this just an inconvenience, or is this concerning, but something different than a sin issue that needs some other kind of assistance, um, and it also gives us an opportunity to examine ourselves, to get honest with ourselves about any sin we might be harboring. I cannot tell you the number of conversations, hard conversations, I have had some hard conversations, but the number of hard conversations I have not had because I realized I was just as guilty as the other person, and it was because I was trying to observe this and I was not the person to bring this up. Or maybe I didn't have a full picture of what was actually going on. 
So this first step is really key. The other thing about facing the person is you have to actually interact with them as a person, as your brother or sister in Christ, not as a sinner or that annoying person over there or the person who sits at the other table during fellowship time or whatever. It's about caring for the other person. So if we think of this in terms of rescue, here's our fellow rescued person. They are in the water, and they're for whatever reason, they're not connected. That's terrible. I want to help them, not I want to show them how bad or stupid they're being. I want to help them. And so let me, please, let me reattach you to the rescue copter you got on hit, as opposed to pushing them further under the water, or blowing them off, or whatever, or making it all about their guilt, or my superiority, or whatever. It means that I have to actually care about the person. Early, early on in my time at this church, I had an interaction with someone that one of you witnessed, and in the conversation, Jesus gave me love for that person that I did not have before. I, it was, I like felt it come from the corner of the room right through me, and I was like, I just care about you. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I actually care about this person. And that was the first step in restoring a relationship. So this, this is what can happen when we are doing this from a standpoint of, this is my brother or my sister, I want to help them not drown. The principles behind this first step are care for the offender by reminding them that of life, of Jesus' way, but not publicly shaming them. If they won't listen, take one or two others along. Another way that, so we have already talked about how we don't want to make this into a checklist because when we do that, it turns it into step, it turns it into being about the checklist instead of about the relationship. The heart of what Jesus is talking about here, the heart of what Jesus did on the cross is about restoring relationship. That is what Jesus' salvation, Jesus' rescue is. So when we take someone else along, which is what happened in the story I just told you, we do it so they can hear the interaction for themselves. That person should be somebody who's already in relationship with both of us and who wants the best for both of us. That person or people add a second layer of wisdom and discernment whether, regarding whether this is really a sin issue and also whose sin issue it is. Because, frankly, I don't even always know myself. But if I have someone else that's watching, that might become clearer. Then if the person, if it really is a sin and the witnesses agree, and they still don't listen, they don't care, they're blowing it off, they don't, this is different than a sin which is difficult to stop doing, this is an intentional, I don't, I don't want to change, I don't want to get better, I don't care, then 
we bring in a broader community, and then eventually the whole church. This is where the broader community of rescued rescuers, as a final attempt to rescue this friend who got lost, gets together in love. And this is why we all need to feel like we belong to each other. Because if we ever got this far in this little process that Jesus described, and we didn't feel connected to each other, it would be much harder and probably much more damaging. But this is a great way of cooperating with Jesus in going after lost sheep. The member of the flock who is not an unbeliever, but who, for whatever reason, got lost. Then, Jesus says, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is a little tricky. A lot of churches historically have interpreted this as a reason to excommunicate someone. And there's some okay reason to think of it that way because Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector, and frankly, probably most of Jesus' followers didn't treat pagans or tax collectors very well. But this is also Jesus saying it. So I think what he's really saying here is, if all of these attempts at restoration are not working, go back to the beginning. Treat this person like they're not rescued yet. How do we treat people in the shipwreck who have not been rescued yet? Love them. And maybe re-evangelize them. And, but it doesn't necessarily or at all, mean disfellowship them. Jesus had tax collectors and former pagans in his, among his followers. So, I do believe that this is what he's saying. We, the whole point of all of Matthew 18 is the humility of a child caring for each other in this community that Jesus is trying to build. And if there's somebody who doesn't want to be part of the community, well, okay, but we can still love them. As rescued people carrying out Jesus' mission, we are called to bring life. And when we're connected to Jesus and bringing our thoughts and actions in line with his, we have authority, like he says in this passage, to bind the death-dealing actions and to loose the life-giving ones. And above all else, the way that we do that is forgive. Let's be clear, forgiveness, Jesus' kind of forgiveness does not mean saying, oh, it's okay. Like, we went through this whole process with this person who was lost, and they still want to be lost, and so we'll just say, oh, well, that's okay. You can still be here in this family like you're a rescued person, even if you're not apparently a rescued person. Um, we don't, excusing sin is not the same as forgiving sin, because excusing sin means we're not actually acknowledging that it's sin. This brings us all the way back to the beginning where we can't get rescued until we know that we have to be rescued. Sin can't be forgiven until we know that it's actually sin. Right? We don't want to leave our fellow crew member floundering in the waves unattached to the lifeline. If we don't 
acknowledge that there's sin there, it cannot be healed. It cannot be dealt with. It cannot be forgiven. We can't forgive it. But forgiveness is what rescues us. That's what rescued us in the first place. And forgiveness is what reconciles. God doesn't want... I love that your ringtone is Amazing Grace. (laughs) God doesn't want anyone, even the evildoers, to die. So as we, the rescued ones, join Jesus in his rescue mission and dive into the waves, let's remain connected to Jesus and his desire to bring life to all people. And as we're connected to him, let's forgive and forgive and forgive as many times as it takes even if, like Jesus says to Peter, it's 70 times 7. Amen. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. That's a whole other sermon. Um, How to forgive in your way is something that takes a lifetime to learn, but Lord, we are yours, and we want to become like you, and so we ask for your grace and mercy to do that and to be people who... um, Share your life with everyone that we meet, including each other, that we are people who truly care for each other when we see each other getting off track, that we will be humble and gracious and have childlike faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.